trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I'm glad you found this program, however you found it, whether it was through word of mouth, pure accident, or you're taking a walk on the wild side and just kind of wanted to see what it's like to revel in wrong think. I have some wonderful sponsors who make this program possible. I can't tell you how important they are to keeping me on the air doing what I'm doing. They include HSLAmmo.com, MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and Garage Door Pros. You can reach Garage Door Pros at GarageDoorProservices.com. Anyway, I've got a, I've got a show notes page. I actually have a website that I would encourage you. Take a look at it. It's the BrianHydeShow.com. There are resources for wrong thinkers like you and me. My goal is never to tell you what to think, but I am definitely here to try to encourage you to think clearly and independently about the world around us. Why? Well, that's a fair question. Let's just say I have this hunch. Maybe it's more than a hunch. I almost have a certainty that the times we are living in are very serious. And not to, to you know, well, human, humanity's never faced serious times before. Why, the Black Plague? Ha, that was nothing. No, it's, it's more a matter of uh, we're at a very pivotal point in human history. And I don't think it's an accident that you and I have an awareness of what's going on. And, and uh, on top of that awareness, it's very likely that you have a desire to, to be some kind of influence in the world. And I'm hoping that's an influence for good. If you came here looking how to be an influence for evil, uh, you're probably in the wrong place. Or at least you're going to feel very uncomfortable in short order. Let me start with a couple of quotes here. This is one from H.L. Mencken from Minority Report. Indeed, it may be said with some confidence that the average man never really thinks from end to end of his life. There are moments when his cogitations are relatively more respectable than usual. But even at their climaxes, they never reach anything properly describable as a level of serious thought. The mental activity of such people is only a mouthing of cliches. What they mistake for thought is simply a repetition of what they have heard. My guess is that well over 80% of the human race goes through life without having a single original thought. That is to say, they never think anything that has not been thought before and by thousands. Again, that's H.L. Mencken, one of the uh, rare truth-tellers that, uh, that has graced this planet. Now, I want to temper that with the idea of, well, were you saying we don't, none of us thinks originally? Let me explain why I'm encouraging that independent thought. Now, we'll, we'll finish up here with a quote from G.K. Chesterton. This is from his Eugenics and Other Evils, rather, an argument against the scientifically organized state. He said, the wisest thing in the world is to cry out before you are hurt. It is, a, it is no good to cry out after you are hurt, especially after you are mortally hurt. People talk about the impatience of the populace, but sound historians know that most tyrannies have been possible because men moved too late. It's, it's often essential to resist a tyranny before it exists. So let me just kind of tie these together. I speak out, number one, because I, I really do want to encourage people to think 
independently to really start to question what's going on. Question the narrative. When people tell you, hey, it's totally normal to shut societies down and to force people to take medical procedures they don't want. And it's totally normal for us to agitate for war with this group or that group. I think it's a good idea to question whether those really are good ideas rather than simply fall in line with everybody else because, you know, you'll be singled out and you'll be picked on if you, if you don't go with the crowd. But there's also the matter of we have been the recipients and the beneficiaries of an incredible amount of liberty and opportunity. And in many ways, we are squandering that when we just sit back and passively let the current carry us and go along with whatever's happening because, well, it must have been meant to be this way or else it wouldn't be going like this. And it should be obvious to most people, even the really obstinate have to admit, you know, this is, this is moving closer to tyranny. This is becoming more of a tyrannical situation. And so I speak out in order to help resist a tyranny before it fully exists. Oh, it's, it's got some deep roots down right now. But we still have opportunity. We still have a lot of our freedoms. I'm just very keenly interested in maintaining what remains of those freedoms and perhaps reclaiming some of those that we have heretofore lost. So, with that in mind, that's where I'm coming from. If you're still sticking around, thanks. <laughs> thanks for letting me get that off my chest. Where to begin? Let's start with uh, the ongoing collapse of trust in the news media. I know this is just an alternate uh, source. This is one little voice out there compared to massive organizations that are much more well-organized, much more well-financed, and have incredible reach compared to little old me. But I, I'm including in my show notes today... A Twitter thread unroll from Glenn Greenwald, who explains why liberal corporate journalists still don't understand why they are so despised and how impotent they really are, thanks to their activism rather than their journalism. He says liberal corporate journalists still have no clue how despised and therefore impotent they are. Even the ones with no journalistic accomplishments somehow believe they should still wield the power to decree who should and shouldn't be listened to and who must be blacklisted. And one of the reasons uh, that, that he's sent this tweet out is a journalist by the name of Adam Davidson. I know, every, who's, who's that? <laughs> I'd never heard of him either. But Adam says, well, can we officially no longer pay any attention to Glenn Greenwald other than as a dangerous fringe figure? Like, nobody needs to engage in anything he's saying. Like, it's a thing that needs to be engaged with. Okay, so little valley girl talk there, but that's, that's cool. I think what, what set off Adam Davidson is the fact that Glenn Greenwald is among those who was interviewed in a, a program called Alex's War. The world premiere of that is actually two days from now. And it's, it's about uh, Alex Lee Moyer. She's the producer, the film director, rather, and uh, also uh, Alex Jones. Glenn is hosting a live Q&A with them. And, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's Alex Jones that sets off this Adam Davidson. But the bottom line is this one journalist, whoever he is, really thinks Glenn Greenwald doesn't deserve to be heard because... He's putting this other alternative voice out there, or at least acknowledging this alternative voice in Alex Jones. Now, I get it. Alex Jones is not everybody's cup of tea. And, and frankly, sometimes I find him so theatrical and over the top that it's a little bit tough to take. But 
Let's consider why Alex Jones even has standing and has a presence. And that comes back to, as Glenn Greenwald points out, the liberal wing of corporate media is collapsing. And deservedly so. Their audience is disappearing and nobody trusts them. The only sector of the media that's actually growing is independent journalism. So he says, look at this desperation using censorship and decrees to demand they keep their status. Now he asks, what do obscure and unaccomplished failures like Adam Davidson, uh, what they fantasize will happen, when, is going to happen when they issue these decrees? This huge audience that we have that they never had is going to hear it and think, oh my goodness, Adam Davidson said we shouldn't pay attention to him anymore, so we better stop. He says the word fringe here is also telling. Corporate journalists regard Joe Rogan as fringe, even though their audience, which even though the audience rather, which listens to and trusts him, is roughly 10,000 times greater than theirs. But they don't count since it's only ordinary people. Only D.C. journalists and politicians count. So Glenn Greenwald says, look, employees of media corporations which employ the propagandists who lied the country into war in Iraq, whose newsrooms are filled with trained liars from the U.S. security state, and who routinely feature war criminals, have strong opinions on who can and cannot be interviewed. He says, I'm considering making up for the harm done by interviewing Alex Jones by following it up with interviews of Bill Kristol and David Frum, two of the key propagandists who sold Americans the invasion of Iraq provided CNN, MSNBC, and The Atlantic will give these guys time off to do it. All right, that's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but that's uh, that's nonetheless a pretty good uh, backhanded slap to uh, this Adam Davidson and to others who would say, we have to silence these people because they're talking about things they have no business talking about. Yeah, they're also generating an audience that you can only fantasize about. So, you know, maybe maybe there's something here. Either way, whether you believe Bill Crystal and David Frum, whether you believe Alex Jones, whether you believe Glenn Greenwald, it still leaves the necessity that you and I have responsibility for owning our own worldview, which means we need to be able to make up our minds. What is fact and what is fiction? And I, I mentioned this the other day in an interview uh, that I was doing with uh, uh, the president of the Idaho Freedom Foundation, Wayne Hoffman. And a, a person responded in the live stream. Just, they sent a comment and said, well, you know, not all of us have time to go out there and be independent news organizations. And that's true. All of us are busy. Inflation makes us work harder to keep our heads above water. But ultimately, what it comes down to is how important is it to you to know the truth? And if it's important enough, trust me, you will find the time and the energy to seek the truth out no matter what. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. Welcome back to the show. I'm going to throw a mention out here for Garage Door Pros. You can go to garagedoorproservices.com to access their website. This name should be of particular interest to my listeners in the southern Utah area, including St. George, Cedar City, Mesquite, and even Colorado City. Now, these are, these are the folks I would send you to if you need commercial garage doors, if you need residential garage doors. They are a local company. 
they have a very good reputation. Really, you should look at the reviews of their customers and, and see how much attention to detail and how great their customer service is just to understand why they are preferred. They install, they service, they repair garage doors. By the way, doors made in America. Quick response, much faster lead time than other companies can give you. And, and this being a very uh, warm time of year, if you've been thinking about, you know, we really need to replace our garage door ever since Junior's driving lesson that, uh, you know, put a dent in it. Think about getting an insulated garage door because they can help you with that, too. You can call 435-525-2773 or go to the website, garagedoorproservices.com. Well, you know, no matter how the new kids try to reinvent the wheel every generation or so, there's still value in studying what came before us. And specifically what I'm talking about here is reading great books. Got a great article here from Annie Holmquist from intellectualtakeout.org comparing a middle school reading list from 100 years ago to what the, what the kids are reading today in middle school. This is pretty revealing. Annie Holmquist writes, I recently uh, dug up a 1908 curriculum manual in the Minnesota Historical Society archives. It provided instructions on everything from teacher department, deportment rather to uh, com- recommended literature lists for various grades. Now she says, as a book lover, I was especially interested in the latter. So with the exception of a few textbook-like anthologies, the chart that she shows here lists the recommended reading material for Minnesota's 7th and 8th graders back in 1908. Let's see what a few of these titles look like. Let's see, we've got uh, Lobo, Rag and Vixen by Ernest Thomas Thompson Seton, rather. Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson. Captain's Courageous by Rudyard Kipling. Evangeline from Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Uh, Harold, Last, Sax, Last of Saxon Kings by Edward Bulwer-Lytton. Essays from Sketchbook by Washington Irving. Some of these names, do you recognize these, by the way? Knickerbocker's History of New York, Washington Irving. Grandmother's Story of Bunker Hill and Other Poems by Oliver Wendell Holmes. How about The Spy by James Fenimore Cooper? Stories of the Olden Time by James Johannot. Adventures of a Deerslayer by James Fenimore Cooper. The Young Mountaineers by Mary Noales Murphy. Harris's Stories of Georgia by Joel Chandler Harris. Old Ballads in Prose by Eva March Tappan. Stories from Dickens by well, Charles Dickens. How about that? Stories of Heroic Deeds by James Hona, Jehonot, rather. Gold Bug by Edgar Allan Poe. Rob and His Friends, or is it Rab? I think it's Rab and His Friends by John Brown. And Courtship of Miles Standish by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Now, I'm no literary expert, but I got to admit, there's, there's a lot of those books I've never touched. In fact, the majority of those books I've never read. Recognize a lot of the authors, but uh, these are great books. These are books that uh, would have contributed to a student's understanding as well as given them some rollicking good stories to contemplate as well. So Annie Holmquist says, with such list in hand, I decided to examine if the common accusation that today's education standards have been dumbed down is really true. And she says, to make sure I wasn't unfairly weighting this survey in favor of the past, I went to one of the Twin Cities metro area's finest districts, namely Edina Public Schools. And again, with the exception of a few textbook anthologies, the list that I'm about to share with you offers the reading options for their 7th and 8th grade students. 
Now, I don't know if you've heard of any of these, but here are a few worth, worth checking out. Nothing But the Truth by Avi. Touching Spirit Bear by Ben McHaleson. A Step from Heaven by An Na, A-N, final name or last name is N-A. Last Book in the Universe by Rodman Philbrick. The Adventures of Tom Sawyer by Mark Twain. I'm actually a little surprised to see that one there. Only because, uh, well, Mark Twain has, uh, how can we put this? Use some politically incorrect language, which apparently was the norm back in, in the day. Uh, the House of the Scorpion by Nancy Farmer. Homeless Bird by Gloria Whelan. The Diary of Anne Frank by Goodrich and Hackett. The Breadwinner by Deborah Ellis. Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. Of Beatles and Angels by Maui Asgadam. Uprising by Margaret Peterson Haddix. Chains by Laurie Hulse Anderson. And Call Me Maria by Judith Ortiz Kofer. Now, she says, in examining these lists, I noted three important differences between the reading content of these two eras. Number one was time period. One of the striking features of the Adena list is how recent these titles are. Most of the selections were published in the 21st century. In fact, only four of the selections are more than 20 years old. Now, in comparison, over half the titles on the first list were at least 20 years old in 1908, with many of them averaging between 50 to 100 years old. Now, older is not necessarily better, but she says the books on the first list suggest that the schools of the past were more likely to give their students time-tested classic literature rather than books whose popularity rather may just be a passing fad. Secondly, there are thematic elements. She says a striking difference between the two book lists are the themes they explore. The first is full of historical references and settings which stretch from ancient Greece and Tanglewood Tales to Middle Ages, Harold, last of the Saxon kings, to the founding of America, the courtship of Miles Standish. And though highly recognized authors such as Longfellow, Stevenson, Kipling, and Dickens, these titles introduce children to a vast array of themes crucial to understanding the foundations upon which America and Western civilization were built. Now, the Adena list, however, largely deals with modern history, particularly men hitting on, many hitting on the current political and cultural themes like the Taliban, that's in the breadwinner, cloning, illegal immigrants, the drug war, House of the Scorpion, um, deeply troubled youth, touching spirit bear. In terms of longstanding, classic authors Mark Twain and Ray Bradbury are really the only ones who stand out. So Annie Holmquist says it's good for children to understand the world in which they live, but as with any area of life... You can have too much of a good thing. A continual focus on modern literature narrows the lens through which children can view and interpret the world. And she asks, would it not be better to broaden their horizons and expose them to a balance of both old and new literature? Number three, she talks about the reading level. Many of the books on the Adena list use fairly simple, understandable language and vocabulary familiar to the modern reader. Consider the first paragraph of Nothing But the Truth. Quote, Coach Jameson saw me in the hall and said he wanted to make sure I'm trying out for the track team. Said my middle, gym, my middle school gym teacher told him I was really good. Then he said, with me on the Harrison High team, we have a real shot at being county champs. Fantastic. He wouldn't say that unless he meant it. Have to ask folks about helping me get new shoes. Newspaper route won't do it all. But Dad was so excited when I told him what Coach said that I'm sure he'll help. Now, compare that with this passage from the first paragraph of Longfellow's Evangeline. This is the forest primeval, the murmuring pines and the hemlocks, bearded with moss and in garments green, indistinct in the twilight. 
Stand like druids of eld, with voices sad and prophetic. Stand like harpers whore, with beards that rest on their bosoms. Loud from its rocky caverns, the deep-voiced neighboring ocean speaks, and in accents, disconsolate answers the wail of the forest. Yeah, just a little bit of a difference there. So, how do you expect a child to understand that? Some may be asking, and, and that's where Annie says, that's the point, though. Unless we give our, ch- our students challenging material to dissect and process and study, how do you expect them to break out of the current poor proficiency reading levels and ratings and advance beyond a basic reading level? She has a good point. So she says, my takeaway from this comparison, it's great schools today have students read contemporary literature, but we still need to make sure that students also read good literature from the past, and that means reading literature that is sufficiently challenging. This is probably the reason why most of us don't pick up old books, right? Well, this one feels a little bit over my head. Go ahead and read it anyway. It's good for you. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Well, I appreciate you uh, making this program a part of your day. If it's uh, something that strikes the right nerve, scratches the itch that you need, maybe tell a friend about it. And if you'd like to subscribe to my show notes, I always include some great reading material, links that can take you further on a journey into the various topics that I may cover in the course of a day's show. It's not going to cost you anything. You'll find in my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com, down at the bottom of the page. See that big sign there that says subscribe? Just share your email address with me. That's what I'll do. I'll email a copy of those show notes to you each day that I do the program. Well, you know, it's not easy to admit that each of us has blind spots, but it's still true. Ken McManigal has a great way of connecting the dots on how politics depends on blind spots. Maybe I should share a few thoughts from him. Ken McManigal says politics actually depends on blind spots. And he says everyone has them. Everyone has blind spots, especially when it comes to politics. In fact, he says, I'd say politics is made up of blind spots knitted together with wishful thinking, expressed through legislation designed to violate people you don't like. That seems pretty accurate to me. He says conservatives generally love the Constitution, but he says they have a blind spot when it comes to unconstitutionally controlling people's movement. They obsess over immigration and are willing to toss the Constitution aside for this issue. It's almost a universal conservative trait, but this wasn't always the case. Now, liberals, progressives, or whatever they're calling themselves today, generally love bodily autonomy, at least concerning abortion. But they don't feel the same when someone makes a choice to defend their bodily autonomy with a firearm or chooses not to have injections forced into them. It's a blind spot that almost defines their ideology. He says politics depends on blind spots for its very existence. Without them, it would shrivel away in the burning white light of truth. And the thing with blind spots is that you can easily see them in others or in other groups, but you can't usually see them in yourself without help. If someone points out what they think is a blind spot you have, well, he says you better take notice. They might be right and they might be wrong, but wouldn't you rather figure it out? Well, often the answer is no. He says, I've spent my life trying to find and eliminate my own blind spots. People have been enthusiastic to point them out to me, and that's how I went from being a conservative to being a constitutionalist to being libertarian. 
every blind spot I discovered led me toward a greater respect for liberty. It never swung the other direction, or at least it hasn't yet. And so he says, I owe thanks to the people who helped me along the way. Many times they were right. Often, though, people imagine blind spots where they don't exist, based on seeing their biases through their own blind spots. So if someone looks at the color you've called blue and tells you, that's orange, take another look, comparing it to examples of blue, orange, and other colors. If you still see blue, you aren't obligated to say you agree it's orange just because someone tells you it is and calls it your blind spot. If you can logically explain yourself to shine light where someone else thinks you have a blind spot, it might indicate the blind spot is theirs. I just love his way with words on this. And this is something that took me way too long to figure out too, but just because someone says, well, I don't agree with you on this. Do you realize at that point in the conversation, it's perfectly acceptable to say, that's okay. My belief system does not require other people to agree with me. But for some reason, sometimes we get stuck in this idea that, well, you know, nobody should really be disagreeing. We should all be, you know, coming together and, and uh, you know, in a perfect agreement. And this is why you have to submit. You have to say, I'm right. Trust me, I've been there where, you know, life is not about, you know, growing in information, growing in understanding and, and uh, coming away from a conversation, a discussion, or even an argument with a better understanding than you had before. It's only about winning. That's such a difficult mindset to break out of. And again, I speak from experience. But I can also tell you, life becomes a lot more easy and a lot more calm. And people become far more receptive to whatever truth you may have if you're willing to lose that need to win. And it also allows you and me, if we adopt such an attitude, to have the humility to accept truth or accept correction. When someone is offering it sincerely, I know it's when people are out there just with a ha gotcha, you know, kind of mentality, it's pretty tough to accept correction or, um, you know, someone to, to point out a flaw if you think that they're doing it just because they feel like they've scored some kind of brownie points. But if someone is speaking the truth with love, they don't seem determined to conquer you with their words. It's sure a lot easier to consider what they have to say and sometimes to change your thinking if it turns out that what they're saying has truth. I'm sorry if that sounds pedantic. It just, it took me so long to figure that out. But I'm grateful that I did. And I still struggle with it from time to time, but it's, it's made things a lot easier. And it sure, it sure seems to bear sweeter fruit than the whole, you know, beat them into a pulp rhetorically. All right, one final note here. There are very few things in life as underrated as legitimate pain. And I'm not saying that's a good thing. We should all be out there, you know, trying to be as miserable as possible. I'm not a masochist. I don't think you probably are either. But when it comes to legitimate pain, it teaches us in ways that nothing else can. I've got a great article here from Jonathan Barnes about turning pain into a blessing. Jonathan Barnes says, When my editor offered the opportunity to write some stories on folks whose health was adversely affected by the COVID-19 vaccine, I jumped at the chance. Now, that assignment may sound depressing to some, but he says, I knew it was important to write the stories of a group of people who've been marginalized and ignored. But he says, what I didn't realize was how the assignment would change me. He says, these stories are emotional for me. For one thing, I'm a 50-something male, and the people I've spoken with so far for the Vaccine Survivor Series are basically within a decade of my age. 
But he says, my closeness in age to these vaccine injured wasn't the only thing that made these interviews emotional. As so often happens with a reporter doing his job, you develop a rapport with the person you're interviewing. You share personal things with each other. You might even internalize some of her pain as you record and process the story. Evidence for things far more wonderful than some simple luck or bad luck mindset to life began to reveal itself as I interviewed. He says these people had been struck low by illnesses they didn't deserve and never should have gotten. But the wrongdoing of a draconian vaccine mandate and their resulting pain isn't their focus. Instead, they've sought to turn their pain into a blessing. And he says that's exactly what their stories have been to me. Each person's story has surprised me in different ways. But each has taught me things such as persevering with a smile, having courage, being thankful for all progress, loving others, never losing hope, and the importance of belief. People who are very ill or recently were or have gone through some other huge hardship have to rely on something inside themselves to make it through. So I always ask these vaccine survivors, do you believe in God? And he says, the first three gals I profiled all responded affirmatively to the question. But the fourth interviewee was different. He didn't believe in God before he became so deathly ill from the vaccine that he was on oxygen and in the hospital as a quadriplegic for months. But now he believes and talks with God while riding his motorcycle, which is easier for him than walking with a cane because his ankles are so weak. Each of these four survivors is now working to improve their own health while helping, supporting, and advocating for others, especially those like themselves. And each of these folks, regardless of how illness has devastated their bodies and finances, is nonetheless expressing gratitude. They say things like, others have it worse, or that they're lucky to work some, or lucky to have a vaccine exemption, or fortunate to have a great support network, or to have insurance. They are lion-hearted and are devout, demanding rather accountability from government and medical officials. He says, regardless of each of these four survivors' levels of religious belief, he says, they all remind me of the biblical Job. Because despite being in pain and suffering through no fault of their own, they still proclaim good. And in that unique focus, they ministered at minimum to this reporter. And who knows how many more readers... There but for the grace of God go I, he says, I've often thought while working on these stories, thinking of the Apostle Paul's famous statement from 1 Corinthians. This phrase has a double meaning for me, raising many questions. If I'd felt the need to or been forced to get the vaccine as many did, I might be similarly afflicted as these people I've interviewed. But he says, if I'd also been vaccine injured, would I have shown such fortitude as these folks have shown? Would I have discovered the grace to persevere with a smile? Would I have seen the hand of God in my journey, where other people could only discern evil? Would I have found compassion for others and strength in my affliction? Jonathan Barnes says, These are only questions I can wonder about and hope that if I'm ever put in a similar situation, I will come through with the same kind of courage and character that these newfound friends of mine have. I just think that was an incredibly helpful commentary. Again, this is from Jonathan Barnes. It's uh, published on intellectualtakeout.org. And there is a uh, link in my show notes that will take you directly to this story so you can check it out for yourself. Maybe share it with others if you think so. You think it's, it's worthwhile. I think hard times come to every single one of us. And it's up to us to decide whether or not those hard times are going to refine us as a diamond is refined by pressure and heat 
or whether they're going to destroy us. He gives us some pretty good food for thought here, though. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, I just want to mention a couple of my sponsors here. Lifesavingfood.com, exactly what it sounds like. Food storage, emergency preparedness products. You know, things you can use to bolster your self-sufficiency. Also, hslammo.com. That's what it sounds like, too. High-quality, new and remanufactured ammunition. And uh, look, no ammo is cheap at this point. It's it's a very desirable commodity. A lot of demand for it. But uh, if you want to find good quality and affordable prices, you cannot do better than hslammo.com. Hope you'll check out both of these sponsors. There are links in my show notes that'll take you directly to them. So kind of keeping on this theme of, uh, you know, are we raising, you know, children who are capable of really thinking for themselves, who are being pushed in their ability to, to comprehend the world around them? There's another way we could ask this. Is America raising a generation of idiots? That's actually what Anthony Esselin, writing for American Greatness, wonders. And I think the point he makes here is, is pretty solid. It's not enough to just be a defender of freedom yourself. We have to instill an appreciation of and a love of liberty in our kids as well. So when he asks, is America raising a generation of idiots? He's, he's got a point that's worth considering here. I hate everyone who doesn't like me, says little Anthony Fremont, who held the whole town of Peaksville in terror. That's because he has a power to read minds, at least to read any intentions that anybody has which may oppose his own, including any disapproval of himself and what he has done, and a power to make things and destroy them. Now, the things he makes, though, are those to the taste of a small boy who delights in what's hideous and cruel. He kills the neighbor's dog because the animal barked at him. He kills another neighbor's children because they didn't want to play the way he did, wishing them into the cornfield, as he says. And he's not troubled by the least glint of a conscience. He is an utterly innocent, sociopathic monster. Even his father, who comes as close as possible to expressing some degree of disapproval, is reduced to pretense, to agreeing with him lest the fury come down upon him. That includes when Anthony makes it snow in the summer, ruining the crops. But it's a good thing you did, Anthony, he says, backing up with a tremor in his voice. Everyone has to say so. Now, Anthony Esselin says, look, readers here may recognize the setup from the 1961 episode, It's a Good Life in the Old Twilight Zone series. Of course, no one among us would accept the principles, if we can call them by that name, that animate little Anthony. Or would we? He pursues what he wants, regardless of what anybody else wants. He makes television for everybody, a movie about monsters fighting each other to the death, and assumes that everybody will enjoy it as much as he does. Or rather, they had better enjoy it, because if they do not, that means that they disapprove of him, which means they don't like him. And of course, he responds with the monstrous equation above, dealing out justice. You're a bad man, he cries at the climax of the episode when one of the guests at the Fremont house, a bit drunk, tries to concentrate the boy's attention so that someone will kill him from behind. You're a very bad man, and he turns him into a jack-in-the-box. Now, Anthony, of course, is quite the moralist, and no one has gotten up the courage to swing a shovel at the back of the boy's head. We might say that the episode is about original sin. Give unlimited powers to any human being, and we should expect cruelty and horror. 
But Anthony Esselin says, here I'd like to add another consideration, one that corroborates our sense that that man is radically flawed and prone to wickedness when there are no checks upon him. And it's the Greek notion of the idiot. Anthony Fremont, for all his power and considerable intelligence, is an idiot, like the Cyclops in his cave. Polyphemus and his one-eyed fellows, says Homer in the Odyssey, raise no crops, tend no vines, build no buildings, and never meet in assemblies. All they do is herd their sheeps and goats, live in their caves, deal with their wives and offspring, and every Cyclops family ignores its neighbors. So to be an idiot, literally, is to be all taken up with your own. You do not consider the common good. You want what you want, and that's it. Notice that farming, viticulture, building, and political assembly all require a going out of yourself, a deferral of gratification, a farsighted plan for good things beyond the needs of the day and beyond the desires of the individual. The principle of the idiot is self-sufficiency, self-ownership. The motive force is self-will. i got to admit, as I'm reading this, I'm feeling a little bit uncomfortable, like, well, but that's kind of where I want to put my attention. Well... Let's continue on. Anthony Eslin asks, are we raising idiots in America? Well, as soon as you say that in any single realm of human action, each person may possess his own moral vision as if he were the god of his little Peaksville. You have sought out your cave and only your physical limitations, the civil law sometimes, some fear of vengeance from your victims, and some residual non-idiocy from religious traditions of what used to be your culture, will keep you from being Anthony Fremont as far as you can be. It is the property of the idiot to refuse to look beyond himself or the small group of like-selved people. He may trick up his insistence with the frills of an argument, but all it is in the end is the stamp of a foot and a shout, I wanna! Say to the idiot, if we accept that unmarried men and women should be able to live together without social disapproval, the effect upon the family long-range will be calamitous. But the idiot will say, that's no concern of his. Say to the idiot, the child in the womb is a human life, innocent, and his father and mother are responsible for his existence and should at least do him no harm until he's born. And the idiot says, that's just what you happen to think. Not addressing the question of truth, not bothering to consider the long-range effects of principle that some human lives may be tossed aside in the trash. Anthony Esselin says, the idiot has a radically foreshortened field of thought. Anthony Fremont doesn't care what's going on in Peaksville. It doesn't matter. It's easy to say, whatever it is, it's not as good as here, because here, I get what I want. Just as the idiot does not consider the common good, so too the idiot is unimpressed by the past. He acknowledges no debt of gratitude to those who came before. To his own forebears, he cries, you are bad men, you are very bad men, and he wishes them into a cornfield of ignorance, distortions, and outright lies. For you can be a cyclops in time as in space if every generation ignores the generations past or in the playing out of the premises of their actions the generations to come. The idiot, like the cyclops, produces no great art because that would require self-denial, self-sacrifice, giving yourself over to what transcends your person. It's not simply absurd that the Greeks attributed poetic inspiration to the muses The idiot's mind does not go roving through the vast fields of our heritage of literature, art, music, and intellectual endeavor. Because to do that, you must make yourself small, a receiver, a grateful heart. You must submit. You must obey in the old sense of the word. You must hear. You must take heed. 
I'm one who takes the pen, says the pilgrim Dante, when a fellow poet in purgatory asks him to identify himself as the progenitor of the sweet new style. When love breathes wisdom into me and go finding the signs for what he speaks within, well, the results speak for themselves. Men of the Middle Ages who revered the great poets and thinkers of the ancient world, both Christian and pagan, invented new forms of art everywhere we turn, and sometimes in their literature produced works that are quite incomparable. Nothing is like Dante's Commedia, though Dante does not take two steps without thinking of Virgil or Aristotle or Augustine or Thomas Aquinas or Scripture. And nothing is like what the anonymous author of the poem Pearl accomplishes, he who reads Dante's Paradiso in turn. But the idiot does not see his work in the humbling and instructive light. Therefore, his art is self-absorbed, self-expressive, the grunts and shrieks of self-will, or a presentation of self as the ultimate good. One woman's feminist shriek is much like another, and one man's brute grunt is much like another's too. Anthony Eslin says the idiot is irreligious. Now, he says, I'm not saying that all irreligious people are idiots because the self-enclosure that characterizes idiocy is too narrow, too small-minded to admit what might strike the soul with awe. Zeus protects beggars and strangers, but the Cyclops doesn't care about that and makes bold to say so. Anthony Eslin concludes by saying, How often must I say to people who believe they are progressive, and sometimes even to those who believe they are conservative, that we are not islands unto ourselves? He says, Come out of the caves. Stop saying, This is what I want, and I should get it because I want it, because that's what this nation was founded on. No, our founders were not idiots. Don't be an idiot anymore. Instead, aim for the glorious liberty of the children of God, but he says, that is another conversation. Now, I'll admit, I definitely have some idiotic tendencies in my desires to just be left alone and just, you know, come on, let me enjoy my time with family, with friends, my fishing pole. (laughs) I I just want to be left alone. And frankly, as I watch our society devolving into whatever it's currently devolving into, there are times when I truly wish that I could just move away to a mountainside somewhere or some quiet uh, forest, lake, or stream and let the world, you know, fall apart on its own terms. Thankfully, I've had some very good influences that have helped temper my idiotic impulses. And for what it's worth, I've discovered that if I'm going to do something or try to use whatever influence I have as wisely as I can. That requires me to be among people, to serve other people, and to be where there is the need for truth and light to be spoken. Not that I'm cornering the market. This is The Brian Hyde Show.